morning, guys. Welcome back to our teaching in the Gospel of John. Now, the last time we were here in chapter 19, we were dealing with all of the events that were surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus. From the time that he was condemned by Pilate, that is, condemned guilty of sedition against Rome, for that was the Roman charge against him. And we remember, but the Jewish charge against Jesus was blasphemy because Jesus called himself son of God. But nevertheless, so we were here in chapter 19 and all of those events that we saw dealt with the crucifixion of Jesus. That is the scourging of Jesus, the uh, intolerable treatment that he received from the hand of the Roman soldiers. And finally, Jesus' condemnation, um, that is, he was guilty of that sedition that we just got through talking about and led off to be crucified. And in dealing with the issues of the crucifixion, what we did see as in John's gospel, how Jesus was in total control of the events. And we saw such things as Jesus giving the care of his mother to the apostle John. And we also saw where Jesus gave up his life. And that was very important. Now, if you don't uh, remember what we said about those things, because that was critically important, the giving of Jesus' life, his self-giving. When Jesus would say, no man takes my life from me, I have power, I have authority to lay it down, I have authority to take it up again. That was so critical when we saw Jesus on the cross when he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. But nevertheless, we're not going to recount all of that. But in chapter 19, we ended with the crucifixion of Jesus and the coming in of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and getting the body and anointing the body with those spices and burying the body in a cave. Now, as we get into chapter 20, what we have to remember is as we are continuing these events, remember the crucifixion of Jesus took place during the season of the Passover and also what was called that high Sabbath, the Sabbath that would follow the Passover feast. So it's a lot of the things that they wanted to do in the preparation for the body of Jesus, they could not do so. And concerning the disciples of Jesus, they were not able to participate. Remember what we did see, we saw Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus taking care of the body of Jesus. So there would be a sense of not knowing how much uh, preparation was done for Jesus' body to be buried and his, speaking from the perspective of his disciples and his disciples and their participation of that so that they wanted to give Jesus a good and proper burial, but they were prevented to do so because of the coming of the Sabbath and these festive times that were taking place. So now as the Sabbath draws to a close, the mindset of the disciples of Jesus, namely we see these particular women, is to prepare, to fully prepare the body of Jesus for burial. However, in their mind, they are going to take the body of Jesus and prepare for burial, but Jesus' body will not be there because we get to the resurrection of the dead which is the climax of the gospel of Jesus. That is the climax of Jesus, the gospel concerning Jesus, his resurrection from the dead. But that is not so much the climax of John's gospel. It is involved, it is much, much so involved in the climax of John's thematic gospel, but we'll see later on where the true climax of John gospel comes at. Okay. But anyway, so now let's just go into cap, um, verse number, I'm sorry, guys, chapter 20, as we continue the events leading to the resurrection of Jesus. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. She ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there but he did not go in. Okay, let's stop there. Now, 
as we get into chapter 20, chapter 20 is highly narrative. So once again, we want to do what? Turn on the theater of your mind so that you can see the events in uh, unfolding in your spirit. All right. So and also too, even though chapter 20 is somewhat lengthy because of it is such is such a uh, narrative, it shouldn't take us that long to actually finish it. But so what happened? So we go and we see we have this Mary Magdalene. Now, remember the writer John. John is not trying to give us the details of all of the events taking place. He is not trying to tell us all of the people who were involved and the persons who were there because we'll find that there were Mary Magdalene, there were there was another Mary, and then there was even another woman there. But John is simply in a very succinct way just trying to show us the events that took place in the sense of an eyewitness account. Okay, remember then the last video when we talked about the soldier that speared Jesus in the side and therefore came from what? Water and blood from the side. And the principle that we were trying to make there, what John was trying to say was this, I saw these things. So John was simply giving an eyewitness account of these things. As we continue on with the resurrection of, of Jesus from the dead, John is try, not trying to give so much in a documentary type sense, trying to get involved all of the peoples that were involved. In order to do that, what you basically have to do is kind of like merge together all of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then you'll get the full picture. John is not doing that. John is just simply giving us eyewitness account that Jesus actually rose from the dead. So he's speaking succinctly to deal with the points and not trying to deal with, and this person was there and that person was there and then they did this. That's not John's purpose, okay? John is just simply saying, first person, eyewitness account, Jesus rose from the dead. Here are the events that led to that point of his resurrection from the dead. And now let's go back to the text. What was that particular point? John uh, focuses on Mary Magdalene rising up early that Sunday morning. And this is, and this, when it talks about that very Sunday morning, which is actually uh, Jesus's resurrection from the dead. Sometimes we may call that like really early Sunday morning, Saturday night. So it's literally between the Saturday and our time in our, the way we look at time, Saturday evening to early Sunday morning. But that is the beginning of the Jewish day, okay? So whether it's dark, and as we see Mary Magdalene coming out in the dark, right before the sun was setting until she reached the tomb, by the time she did that, the sun had set. But I'm not gonna take that perspective in dealing with that, trying to bring in all of the accounts. I'm gonna simply focus on John's account. So Mary is going to the tomb. But again, what is the purpose for going to the tomb? Of course, she is. Uh, she takes along with her other women. They are going to prepare the body of Jesus for burial. Remember what we said concerning when Jesus was actually crucified. And this was one of the reasons why the priest wanted to have Jesus' leg broken. Remember, we talked about that in the last video so that Jesus would go ahead and die take the body down and they can observe the festive times, feast of the Passover, the feast of the unleavened bread. Okay. So they were in the rush. So now that these festive times of high days are over, now she can go and, and the Sabbath is over. She can go and take the body of Jesus and prepare Jesus's body for a proper burial. But by the time she gets there, she notices that the stone was rolled away. Now we're not gonna get into, again, not gonna get into all of the other things that the other writers addressed, but let's just try to stay with John so this doesn't have to take too long. She, she notices the stone is rolled away. John doesn't get into anything about her going into the tomb, about her seeing the particular angels, the angels shining with light, things of that nature. It just simply takes Mary going back to the apostles and she tells Peter and John the events that was taking place. What? That the body of Jesus was missing and that the stone was rolled away. She had no idea where Jesus' body had been laid. And so Peter and John 
hurry out to the tomb. John outruns Peter, but John stops at the door of the tomb looking in, but Peter runs all the way into the tomb. And the idea is Peter is inspecting the tomb. And what do they discover? That the body of Jesus is gone. And the only thing that you see are the clothings that Jesus's body was once wrapped in when he was buried. Okay. Verse six, and Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth with which had been on his head, not lined with the linen wrappings, that's important, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went, went away again to their own homes. Okay, this is simple. Now, and even as we deal with chapter 20, there are not a lot of theological points to be made. There are a few that we need to take some time and deal with. But for the most part, it's like a story. In, that's why we call it a narrative. It's like in the telling of a story. So what happens? So Peter ventures into the tomb and he sees the wrappings that Jesus had that were on Jesus's body. But of course, Jesus's body is not there. And then it also talked about the linen wrapping that was upon Jesus' head. And you can understand that his head would be wrapped as they put his body in the tomb. And you can even understand, remember, when the Romans scourged him, go back and look at what we did on chapter 9. I'm sorry, chapter 19, verse number 1, about the scourging. How his face was completely disfigured from the beatings that he took from the Roman soldiers. But anyway, but that wrapping that was around his head was folded up as a napkin and laid in another place, which shows intent of direction. The whole point is this, clearly that body of Jesus had been risen. Jesus had rose from the dead, that wrapping had been removed, and you can see them folding it up and putting it in another place. This is to demonstrate that clearly the body is not just simply disappeared and stolen, but whatever has taken place with that body, it is with determination. Okay, so this is not the idea of stealing the body. This is the idea of the idea that we will see clearly in that resurrection of Jesus's body. That's why you see that placement of the napkin folded and put in another place. But the point is concerning the minds of the disciples, namely Peter and John, they are absolutely bewildered at this thing, or even in the sense of amazed. Peter is more bewildered. John, John is more amazed because notice what we see here. When John, when the other disciple who first come to the tomb, that's verse number eight. When John saw these things, notice he saw he, he took into account the tomb, the clothing, and how things the things were placed in the tomb. He saw these things and believed. Now, the idea of believing here is he believed the words of his master, Jesus, that Jesus had actually risen from the dead. So it seems to suggest from the text, Peter is in a state of bewilderment, wondering like, I have no idea what in the world is going on here. But John is quietly saying, I do know what's happening. And what has happened is the Lord has risen from the dead. And so then it begins to say what? Verse number nine, for they did not understand the scripture. So even though, now what do we understand? Remember from the time we see this in what is it? Matthew chapter 16, I do believe it is, where Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And we had all types of responses from the disciples. And Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? And then we had that great response of Peter, that Jesus was God in the flesh. You are the Christ, the Messiah, and also what? Son of the living God. And it was from that point that Jesus began to teach them how it was necessary for him to go into Jerusalem, be mistreated from the chief priest and ultimately put to death. But on the third day, 
he will rise again. So Jesus always kept telling them from that point forward about his mistreatment and ultimately he would rise again from the dead. But it was something that they just couldn't get through their head. They had this presupposition. They had this mindset that Jesus was to go to Jerusalem one day and rule and reign. And they would rule and reign with Jesus in their lifetime. And they just could not allow Jesus's words and teachings to just fuse into their minds it was necessary for him to die. And it is also, according to scripture, necessary for the Messiah to resurrect from the dead. So we see this sense of confusion with the disciples concerning the resurrection of Jesus. But nevertheless, there is this glimmer of belief in John the apostle, who is the writer of this gospel, that that John is not just simply confused like the rest of them seemingly are, John is believing Jesus has risen from the dead. Okay. But anyway, so what happened? They just simply depart and go to their own homes from the tomb at this glorious day. Verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. All right. Now, I, I like that part. But anyway, so what happened? So the, the Jesus, I'm sorry, Peter and John, they're going on to their home. with, And there's the sense of bewilderment as well as excitement. But Mary is still there at the tomb weeping. You know, she's really heartbroken because she doesn't know what has happened to the body of Jesus. So as she's there at that tomb door, she looks in and all of a sudden she sees two angels in the tomb. But now this time the angels do not appear to her as glorious beings in white and lightning and things of that nature. They appear to her simply as common men. But there, are, there is one angel at the feet where Jesus was laid and one angel is at the head of Jesus where he is laid. And so they just simply ask Mary, what is the problem? Where uh, uh, with whom, who are you looking for? And so all of a sudden, Jesus is there and Jesus appears to her. And again, we have to understand resurrected bodily form. So Jesus, so we continue on in her distraught condition, Jesus appears to her and he asks her, woman, who are you looking for? And now she thought Jesus was the caretaker, caretaker of the gardens, caretaker, like we would call that caretaker of the cemetery places, stuff like that of that nature. So she thought Jesus was the caretaker. And so she turns to him and begins to say, well, the problem is they've taken away the body of my Lord. I don't know where they've taken. If you do know, just tell me and I will come and get him. Now, that is a very touching and amazing thing because here what you have to understand is we have a woman here. Now, this is not to try to downplay the sense of the fact that she is a woman, but it is important to understand that that is exactly what she is. What does she say? What does she purpose to the gardener whom she thinks to be a gardener, but it's actually Jesus. Just tell me where you've laid his body and I'll come and get him. That is an amazing thing for that woman to literally suggest that she, no doubt, probably along with the other women, would actually come and get the dead body of Jesus. That is a That would be a very difficult thing to do. But what it shows is the love and the loyalty that she had for Jesus. But anyway, so Jesus allowed her, and this is something that we need to see, Remember when um when she spoke to Jesus, she thought that he was a gardener. 
So notice what we see. Jesus was not recognizable by her at that time. There is something different in Jesus's physical resurrected body, something different. Now, I'm not speaking of the difference in the sense of glory, but I am speaking of the difference in one of appearance. Why? Because, of course, she knew what Jesus looked like before he had died. If Jesus looked the same way that he did when he resurrected, she would have immediately recognized that it was Jesus. But notice, she did not recognize that it was Jesus. She thought it was, it was somebody she never saw before. She did not recognize Jesus. So the point that I'm trying to make here is this. Jesus's resurrected body had a, a different a different look in appearance, not only in glory and power, we're not dealing with that right now, but the appearance of Jesus' body was different enough that at the first, you wouldn't recognize him. And even so, as I bring that part up, bless the Lord and thank the Lord for that. Why do I say that? Remember what happened during the Roman scourging. They beat him beyond recognition. So me personally speaking, I do thank the Lord for giving him a new face. Why? A face that was not marred and scarred by the Roman soldiers. But nevertheless, it also speaks to, let me say something else, that number one, since Jesus had a difference in appearance, it goes back to what John, well, actually in the future where John would write in the uh, epistle of 1 John, I think it's chapter three, when John says that we do not know what we will be, but what we do know is that when Jesus does appear, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. So, and then again, 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 and I don't want to make a teaching on this. As the apostle Paul was teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, concerning the resurrection of the dead. And what he was talking about was our bodies. The bodies that we have in our resurrection is a different body than the body that we had in our earthly life. There's a different body in all types of ways. And we're not going to get into that. That's not the subject, but different in glory, different in power, no doubt different in a sense of appearance just like Jesus, okay? Different in appearance. How much, to what degree, I don't know. God didn't give us all of that information, but as we're dealing with this particular topic and relating the principle to the topic of the rest of the scriptures, right? That, what did Paul say? Our bodies, present tense, this body is just a seed that will be planted into the earth, that is, that will die, but it will resurrect a new type of a body with new distinctions and new differences. Resurrection brings about something new. So this is what I'm trying to say concerning Jesus in his appearance to Mary. Notice something, his body had an appearance that was distinctly different to the point that she didn't recognize him at the first. But then he did something marvelous. He called her name. He said, Mary. And that takes our mind back to the very gospel of John. Remember what Jesus said about his sheep? My sheep hear my voice. They know me and I know them. It was something about the voice of Jesus that when she heard his voice, when, and I'm getting excited. Okay. I'm trying to calm down. When she, when he called her name. She knew exactly who he was. And notice what she said, my teacher. And you can see the emotion, the gladness and the joy. And it goes all the way back when Jesus told them, he told the disciples, he says, just like a woman who's having a child. When that woman is giving birth, it is a horrible experience as Jesus was talking about the things that would lead to his crucifixion and even his crucifixion. He said, but yet after she has given to the birth, given birth to that child, to that male child, and has brought him into the world, that sadness is overcome by joy. And notice what we see here concerning Mary. The sadness that she had as she approached the tomb has now been overcome with joy as she now sees the face 
of her resurrected Lord. Jesus, the one who was crucified and died, has now risen from the dead. And so she just simply says, what? My Lord. All right, where was I? I've forgotten exactly how far that I went. Oh, that's where I stopped at. Which he didn't translate Rabboni, Rabboni, which means my teacher. It's Hebrew or Hebrew Aramaic for my teacher. Verse 17. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go, <coughs> excuse me, go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. So now let's stop here. So after she, Jesus, allowed her to recognize him, notice we can see her dropping to her knees and grasping on to Jesus, that is, holding on to Jesus. And the idea of all of these things is, don't ever leave me again. Don't ever leave us again. And this is why Jesus says to her, stop clinging to me. Now, in the King James Version of the Scripture, it would say, do not touch me. But that's not so much as the idea of what is going on here. Jesus was not so much as forbidding her to make physical contact. But Jesus was simply saying, as we see in the text, the context of the Scripture, I cannot stay here. I have to ascend to the Father. There is something that I need to do in heaven, and I cannot stay here. So stop holding on to me, but yet just simply go and tell my brothers. Tell them that you have seen me. Tell them that you have the idea. I've resurrected from the dead and tell them that I will meet them, as the other gospel lets them know, I will meet them in Galilee. So go and tell the brothers, you have seen me and that I have resurrected and you have seen this with your own eyes. But for the moment, I'm, I'm glad to see you and I know that you are glad to see me, but you got to let me go for the moment because I need to ascend to the father. So all of this, and I made a video about that uh, somewhere, uh, somewhere in one of these videos that I did. What did Jesus mean when he said, stop clinging to me or stop touching or holding on to me. But again, the point is what we see that's going on with Jesus. Uh, Jesus has now resurrected from the dead, right? And Jesus at this point, clearly, as he has just said to us, it is the intent. It is in the divine plan of God that once Jesus had resurrected from the dead to return to the father for something. Now, the Gospels don't say what that something is. We have to read the book of Leviticus when the, I'm sorry, why did I, why in the world would I say the book of Leviticus? <laughs> but I mean the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapters nine and 10 in dealing with Jesus's high priestly ministry as well as Jesus's bodily offerings in compared to Levitical offerings, in comparison to the Levitical priestly ministry. This is not the time for this, all right? But just let me just simply say so you can understand it, as chapter 9 talks about the offerings of the, of the animals, this is, this is under the Levitical system. The offering, the blood offering of the animals, sheep, goats, bulls, things of that nature, how it was used to sanctify the tabernacle that Moses had built. All right. So in the same way, Jesus's blood, this is the idea of the book of Hebrews, how Jesus's offering is better than, is a better offering than the offering of Moses, offering of the Levitical system. How Jesus' shed blood did not cleanse the earthly tabernacle, which was simply a shadow of the heavenly tabernacle, but Jesus' blood cleansed the heavenly temple itself. Okay, so this is the idea of what's going on that the gospel writers are not so much as talking about. When Jesus says to Mary, stop clinging to me. Why? Because I need to go to the Father. 
Why does he need to go to the Father? Hebrews chapters 9 and 10, so that he may present his blood, that is, Father, this is the blood that was shed for the cleansing of sin as well as the cleansing of the heavenly tabernacle. And I don't want to get into a whole lot of details on that, but see that video. I, I think I'm going to try to remember to put it in the description concerning why this was necessary for Jesus to do. But what's important for us to see here is why Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. Why? Because I, at this time, I have not yet ascended to heaven. There's business that I need to do in heaven right now. But what I want you to do, tell my brethren what you've seen, tell them that I'm going to meet them, and then we continue on. And of course, Jesus will go to heaven and do the business that God would have him to do. All right. So verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Okay, so let's talk about that now. That we do have some difficulty. There is some good theology, kind of heavy, in here. So it's going to take a little time to deal with this, okay? But we're still working through the narrative. So what has happened? The end of that day, the resurrection day, is now coming upon them. That's what it said. When the evening had come, Jesus makes a miraculous appearance to the disciples. The disciples were in a house with the doors locked and shut. And in the midst of that, Jesus just simply appears to the disciples. So you can understand if you in a house, in a room, and, and everything is locked up tight. Notice it, for fear of the Jews. Now, what did it mean because for fear of the Jews? The Jews had taken Jesus and had Jesus beaten and crucified. So the disciples are afraid what these Jews may try to hunt them down and have them also put to death like Jesus. So basically what we see is the disciples are in hiding, right? And again, what do we see concerning Jesus? We see that exercise of divine power with Jesus, especially in the resurrection of the dead. That is the absolute sense of uh, uh, the exercise of power. When Jesus was alive, he restrained his power. He didn't always use it, but now he just freely uses the power. Why? He knows exactly where they are and notice something else too. Jesus didn't walk to get where they are, knock at the door and they open the door. He just simply appears in the room. And you can imagine while the doors are locked and all of that, and you're already scared. These are the disciples already scared. And all of a sudden, Jesus just poof appears in the room that was scared you to death. And no doubt they probably started running and falling over chairs. And you can see Jesus when he greets them, he tries to calm them down. Peace, brothers. Peace be unto you. So it's not simply a greeting, but he's also calming them down. So he appears to them and what? He lets them see. And this is the idea of John's gospel. First hand witness, an eyewitness account of the resurrection of the dead. Jesus died bodily. How do we know? John said when they stuck him in the side, blood and water came I saw it and I'm testifying to you that this actually happened. Again, that same principle of first witness account, account what Jesus appeared in the room. He did something supernatural when went to the witch. You might think he was simply a spirit, but Jesus proved he wasn't a spirit. What did he do? He offered his hands, his physical hands that were scarred by the nails when he was put on the cross. 
He showed them and offered to him his physical side that was speared by that Roman soldier. Examine me physically so that you will see, number one, I'm not a ghost and I have physical body that has resurrected from the dead. And so this is what John is emphasizing here in his gospel, the physical resurrection of Jesus and also in that resurrection, a resurrection with power and with might. Okay, so that's one of the things that John is saying right here. So when the disciples saw that physical resurrected body of their Lord, once again, like Mary in her uh, distraught spirit, all of their sadness was now turned into joy as Jesus had prophesied, okay? And so now we get to another part. Verse number 21. Now we hear, we hear, remember in Matthew 28, we hear about the great commission when Jesus, after he raised, resurrects from the dead, he sends his apostles off to uh, preach the gospel, to bear the witness of Jesus' resurrection and that Jesus is the Lord, the Christ, died for our sins, things of that nature raised from the dead. He commissions them. So this is what we have here in John. This is the idea of Jesus commissioning his disciples. What? As the Father has sent me, even now I send you. So this is Jesus's commission to the disciples to preach the gospel. And we understand the universality of John's gospel. We, it will begin what? With the Jews. And as we understand from the book of Acts, what? From, the Jew, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world from the Jews ultimately leading to the Gentile world, the commission to preach the gospel. So this is what is going on. That, and so we have to understand the context, Jesus commissioning them to preach the gospel, the gospel that will ultimately go to the world. You cannot do this of your own power. The disciples cannot preach the gospel of their own power, of their own strength, of their own knowledge. They need the inner workings of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit must empower them to preach the gospel, to fulfill the commission that Jesus has just given them. And that's why we see what? We see a preview. What did I say? A preview of what will happen in fullness on the day of Pentecost. What happened? Acts chapter two, on the day of Pentecost, the full power of the Holy Spirit came to the disciples of Jesus to empower them to preach the gospel. You got it? But that day has not come at this time. So what? Jesus enables them in like of a preview of a way because it's not the time for it yet. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. You see now? So Jesus is breathing on them to receive the Holy Spirit in order that they will be able to complete their mission, their, com their commission. What is the commission? To take the gospel to the world. And that's what he just said. What? As my father sent me, what? I am now sending you, but you cannot do this on your own. You will need the power of God to indwell you. So what does Jesus do? As God, what? As God, he is able to give unto them the spirit of God to enable them to do what Jesus just assigned them. Breathe on the Holy Spirit. Now let's get to the other part of this. If you forgive sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now, this verse have often has often been abused and misunderstood. What is Jesus saying by this verse? Always remember, saints, you must look at any and every verse in the context that it is given. What is the context? The context is Jesus commissioning his disciples to preach the gospel and empowering them. So the context of all of this is sending them out to preach the gospel, okay? 
But the problem with this particular verse, the misunderstanding that has come is, and we see this with Catholicism in the Catholic Church, men are not given the power to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins, period, okay? So Jesus is not empowering the disciples to forgive sins. So therefore, you don't confess your sins to some sort of a priest and the priest can absolve you of your sins. That's not what Jesus is saying. Because what? Jesus is not saying so much as forgiving people of sin. What Jesus is saying is what? What the power of the gospel will do. I'm sending you out to preach the gospel. And with the Holy Spirit indwelling you, he will help you to do these things. What is the purpose of the gospel? The gospel is to tell people of the good news of the person of Jesus. He is Christ the Messiah who came in a physical body and died for our sins. And he is also God because only God can bring about salvation. Only God can save. And he rose from the dead. You proclaim, you proclaim this message to the people. And in the proclamation of this message, notice what it says. If you forgive the sins, it is because if you declare what, what happens? So I go and give this message to George. George, Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God come in the flesh died for your sins, rose from the dead, for he is God almighty. And George says, I believe that because it is this message, George, it is this message, George, that can provide forgiveness for your sins. Do you believe that, George? And George says, yes, I believe that. And Jesus says, now you can proclaim to George, your sins are forgiven. Why can I forgive George his sins? Not because I have forgiven George his sins, but because George has believed in Jesus the Messiah and believing in him alone do you have the forgiveness of sin. So therefore, I am simply declaring to George, George, since you believe the message that I have given you, remember the context of what Jesus is saying, my father sent me, I'm sending you, go in the power of the Holy Spirit and proclaim this gospel about me. George, now that you have believed what I have just said to you, George, your sins are forgiven, not because I forgave them, but because they were already forgiven. Why were they already forgiven? They were forgiven you, George, the moment you believed in this message. Do you understand that? They were forgiven you the moment you believed this message. What message? The message that I have been empowered, breathing on them, the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, commanded of Jesus, the message that I have been commanded to preach to you, the day you believe this message, your sins were forgiven you. You got it? However, George, what? In other words, if you retain the sins of any. What, what happens to George? George hears this message that I have preached to him. He The message that I preached to him in the power of the Holy Spirit, concerning the person of Jesus, a physical Messiah who came, lived that righteous life and died for his sins, rose from the dead. Indeed, he is God almighty. And George says, I do not believe that. Then George, your sins remain. Why? Because unless you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, you will die in your sins. George your sins are still retained. Why? There is only one name given unto heaven whereby men must be saved, and that is the name of Jesus. And George, you have rejected that gospel that I brought to you. Therefore, you are a sinner and you will die in your sins. Even as Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So, okay, enough preaching. 
verse 23. That's the teaching, even though I kind of gave it to you guys in an excited way. But you need to understand it in a uh, 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 in a way parabolic. And that's why I use the thing about George. What is this text actually saying? If you forgive any sins, not talking about that which the apostles will do. It is simply that which the apostles will declare. What the context is taking, notice what it just said, as my father sends me, I send you. So the context is preaching the gospel. What happens when people hear the gospel? You only have two positions you can take. You'll either believe and receive what is being said to you, or you will reject what is being said to you in the preaching of the gospel. If you hear and believe, you can declare to that person, you are now free from sins. Why? By faith in Jesus alone. That's why a person is saved, by believing in Jesus, believing in the gospel message alone. But what happens if that person rejects the gospel that you have brought to them? Let them know you will die in your sins. You are still a sinner. Why? Because you have rejected the message of the gospel that Jesus sent us to preach. And that's what's going on in 23. It's not about a person forgiving you of your sins. It's about how to speak to such an individual if you receive the message of the gospel, or if you reject the message of the gospel. Okay, now let's go. Let's kind of bring this to an end. But Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Okay, so now let's get to it. So what happens? The, the, the narrative continues. When Jesus appeared to the disciples the first time, Thomas was not there. And so the disciples told Thomas that Jesus had appeared and everything that had took taken place. And Thomas had a serious attitude. And this is where we get that nickname, Doubting Thomas. But he had a serious attitude of unbelief. And Thomas said, no, I don't believe he rose from the dead. And unless I take my hand in the place where his, in the, the wound in the hand and the wound in the side, I see I have empirical belief where I can handle that bot until those things should happen. I absolutely will not believe. And that's why in the Greek text, when Thomas said, I will not believe, it uses that strong Greek uh, uh, negation, may, which means I absolutely will not believe unless I see for myself. I need to put my hand in the imprint of the hands. Then, okay, fine. So Thomas is really strong uh, in his unbelief. But once again, Jesus hears. Jesus knows all things. He has heard the stout words of Thomas. So what do we have? About a week later, eight days later, what happens? Once again, they were in a room and once again, Jesus appears to them in the same manner that he appeared to the disciples at the first time in a room. And he just simply appears out of thin air. And of course, this can scare you. <laughs> if a person just appears in the room all of a sudden without coming through the door, Jesus not only simply, uh, he greets them, but also what? This calms them down. Peace be unto you. Now, notice what Jesus does. 
John records where Jesus directs his attention straight at Thomas. In other words, Thomas, I saw you. Thomas, I heard you. And I know exactly what you were saying. Jesus asked no question. He went straight to Thomas. Thomas, reach out your hand. Feel these hands of mine. Thomas, here's my side that you wanted to feel. Touch and feel my side. And then we see Jesus upbraiding Thomas and says unto Thomas, do not be unbelieving. But when they tell you that I rose from the dead, believe. And this is a part of our gospel message. And this is the expected response that Jesus has for his people. When you hear about the bodily resurrection of Jesus, as Jesus admonished Thomas, he admonishes us the same thing today. You believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead. Okay, but let's continue on. And in that, how does Thomas respond? And here's where he's this. Verse number 28. Thomas, in seeing Jesus and Jesus coming to him with those prints and let this I rose from the dead. What is the response of Thomas? My Lord and my God. And let me tell you how it reads in the Greek. I want to read it in the Greek. Hakurios mu kahateos mu. The Lord of me and God of me. <laughs> Indeed, you are God. This, remember when I told you guys earlier that the resurrection of Jesus is like the climax of the gospel, okay? But, in the Gospel of John, the resurrection, of, it is the climax. Yeah, it is, it, the, the resurrection involves the climax. But it is actually here. In the resurrection of Jesus, the words that come from the mouth of Thomas is the climax of John's Gospel. What did John say? Let me take you all the way back to the beginning. John said what? In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Verse number 14, tell me about that word who was God. He said, God, the word became a man, flesh. Indeed, Jesus is God. And notice what we see in the resurrection of Jesus. What does Thomas call him? Thomas said, you are indeed God. Even my God, truly, that's who you are. And so in these words of Thomas, John, the writer of the gospel of John, simply says, okay, now I have now reached the end of the point of what I was trying to say. What? You heard it from the mouth of Thomas when Jesus rose from the dead. What did you hear from Thomas's mouth? He is God. But anyway, but it continues on. So Jesus continues with his uh, admonishment to Thomas. He kind of give G kind of giving Thomas a tongue lashing. He says, "Blessed are the people who hear that I have hear and believe that I have rose from the dead without having the proof that I have given you." You know that? Why? Because what? Jesus does not come to every single individual. You know, you go and preach the gospel to a person. Jesus is Lord. He is Christ. He is God. He rose from the dead. And when you get through preaching that, all of a sudden Jesus appears to them and says, what they just said to you is the truth. Touch my hand, touch my side and all that stuff that they said about me and that you read about me, me physically. He doesn't do that for people when they get saved. You have to believe that in accordance with faith. And to those who believe in faith, this about Jesus, what does he say? Such warns, this is a blessing for you. You are indeed blessed. When what? You can believe without having this evidence, Thomas, that I had to give you. Jesus has given ample evidence 
to ample number of peoples. This is what we see in the gospels with the resurrection from the dead, with the women, with the disciples. Even when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, above 500 people saw Jesus at one time in resurrected bodily form. Jesus has given more than enough witnesses that he rose from the dead. People should therefore receive and believe that witness. And in doing so, Jesus declares a blessing for that individual. Okay. All right. So now let's finish it. But now watch this verse number 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you might believe, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, here's what we need to do. We need to deal with this one, this heavy theology, but it's not, not really deep, not hard, but it is good, solid theology. So let's look at it one point at a time. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of disciples, which are not written in this book. So what is John saying? And this is what I've been saying to you guys as we have been coming through the study of John, because actually we are through. John is actually finished with his gospel. He's finished. Now, we understand that there's going to come chapter 21, but I'll talk about why John added 21. He wanted to deal with the restoration of Peter. But anyway, <laughs> but John has, he said, I wanted to tell y'all that Jesus was God and provide ample proof of that. I have now done so. But in reflecting back to what I've been saying to you, and this is what I'm saying to you guys, when John dealt with the miracles of Jesus, he only chose seven miracles. Why? Because the very theme of John's gospel, the reason why John chose only seven miracles, because he wanted to show you Jesus doing things that only God can do. Jesus did not do something that a man could do, that a man equipped and empowered by the Holy Spirit a man can do. Jesus did things that only God could do. He did things in the act of creator, of act of creation. Why? There was a man who had no optical nerves. His eyes were malformed and were not made right when he was born. Do you know what Jesus did for a man who was born blind? He created eyes for this man. The act of creation can only be done by God. And let me tell you something else. Jesus took a man whose body had decayed, decayed and rotten. Not only did that body decay and rot, his spirit had entered into paradise, no longer even with his body. Jesus, by the power of his word, renewed his physical flesh, gave that man a new physical body and commanded his spirit from the land of paradise to reunite with his body. Man, don't you know that only God can do these things? Okay, I'm gonna stop right there. John said, Jesus did many signs, but I'm not concerned with everything that Jesus did. I'm going to only talk about these signs in particular. Why? Because verse number 30, these have been written. What I wrote in my gospel, the things that Jesus did, the signs, the miracles, I wrote them. Why? So that you in reading this, don't be like Thomas. I wrote them so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. What do I mean by the Christ? Remember, we talked about those titles all throughout, that Jesus is a human being, that Jesus actually was a physical man in a human body. Verse number 14 of John chapter one, the word became flesh. And what did it also do? In verse number 18, it tabernacled among us and it showed unto us 
the glory of the Father. In exegeted God the Father, he was a man. He was the Christ. He was the Messiah who was to come. He died and he went to that cross. And when that soldier pierced him, I saw it with my own eyes. Water and blood came from him. It was a physical man who died. He is, he was the Christ and the Messiah. But not only was he a man, he was also what? Verse number 31, the son of God. And remember, what did we tell you about the son of God title? All throughout. That's why we've been working through the whole gospel of John all throughout. What is the meaning of the title son of God? He is God. He is a divine being. He is one with the father. He is equal with the father. All, verse number one, all that God is, Jesus is. And notice, and God was the word, or as we say it in English, the word was God. All that God is, Jesus is. So I wrote you these things. I chose these particular miracles out to show you Jesus indeed was son of man, human being, the Messiah who had came into the flesh. And I also wanted you to know he was God almighty. He is speaking of the dual nature of Jesus. He is both what? God and man. And I chose these particular miracles out so that you might believe this point. What point again? Jesus is God. Jesus is man. Why? Look at the very end. And that believing you may have life in his name. Life. Life speaks to salvation salvation. But what is necessary? Notice, he is the Christ, a man who has come. He is God who has come. This you must believe because in order to have life, you must believe that what? Jesus is both Christ, a man in the flesh, and God. In believing, you may have life in his name. That speaks to salvation. So therefore, guess how John, guess how John ends his gospel? If a person will be saved, and this is the very nature of what it means to be saved, but I'm going to just calm it down and say it. I'm going to teach it. Do you want to have life? Or in other words, if we are simply say it, do you want to be saved? What is necessary? Necessary. And this is what John is saying that he proved. What is necessary to be saved, to have life, to have life, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is a man who came into this world, lived a righteous life, died on a cross for your sins, shed that precious blood, and that man rose, touch me, handle me, that man rose in a bodily form. He is the Christ but also know what? He is God almighty. If you believe these things about Jesus, then you will be saved. Notice what the apostle Paul says. What? For the word is even near you, even in your mouth. What? That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that is Jesus is God, and do what? Believe in your heart that God resurrected him from the dead. In order to be resurrected from the dead, you got to have a human body. So Paul is simply saying in a nutshell that he died for your sins and rose physically from the dead. What does Paul say? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Or here, as John simply says it, you will have life. Okay, so John says, the reason and the purpose of my gospel, because now we are at the end of the purpose of John's gospel. This concludes the gospel of John. John says, I wanted to prove to you guys that Jesus came in the flesh, but he was not simply a man, Christ, who came in the flesh. He was God Almighty, and he proved that he was God Almighty by the things that he did, and ultimately, 
in his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead speaks that his that Jesus is divine. Notice the response of Thomas. When Thomas saw his resurrected body, Thomas said, you indeed are Lord and God. His resurrection proves he is God. And so John ends his gospel simply to say what? And this concludes my gospel. This is why I wrote all of these things, to let you know he is man, he is God. And when you believe this, you can be saved. All right, now, even though I said that this does conclude John's gospel, it actually does. The theme of John's gospel has now been met. But what we're gonna find out is what? That John didn't wanna leave the picture of Peter hanging because we, the last picture we saw of Peter was a very awful picture. Remember the picture of Peter? When Peter denied his Lord, I don't even know the man. Remember that? And John leaves it. This is why we see John is often talked about as the apostle of love. John leaves his gospel with the restoration of Peter and Jesus' love for Peter, all right? And so join me next time as we finally finish the final chapter of John when we look at the restoration of Peter. But before we end the video, if you can say that the Lord has blessed you in these teachings, I ask you to come alongside of me and support these continued teachings. There is always a link in the description that you can use to support the ministry. I'm asking you, will you do so? And for those of you who have done so, thank you for all that you have done. All right, guys. See you next time.